don't be mad. <laughs> don't be mad. Just like Knox Unplug, it might not be what you wanted, but at least you know it's still going to be good for you. Both Jason Farley and myself are out of town right now. We still try and make it work sometimes when we're out of town, but this time we cannot make it work. And we did not, though, want to leave you without something still that would be good or expanded something of the areas that we've talked about before. Me personally, I'm still on a trip with the planets being beans. That's a whole nother conversation we have to broach with Jason and kind of this magical world, enchantment and demons and all that other stuff that we've been talking about. So we've got a lot to talk about. But Jason was at Trinity Church in Wood- Woodenville, Washington, back in July. They had a conference, a family camp, actually, and they asked Jason to come and speak. And Jason spoke on some of the topics that we talk about here on Knox and Plug. And went into a little more detail, if that's possible. At least I think it's unique, different, and encouraging and will be a blessing to you. He gave three talks. And we think that maybe putting all three of these talks together, we might be able to get a full length of Knox Unplugged. (laughs) So enjoy. So once again, it might not be what you want, like Knox Unplugged, but... At least it's going to be something good and be valuable to you. We'll be back in the studio next week having our conversation. I think Jason, in one sense, is just buying time to figure out how he's going to explain beans and planets and angels and the connection between that and is Earth a bean with an angel? We'll talk. That's that's next week. I'm looking forward to having my mind blown. Jason is in New York at Eric Metaxas studio. Meeting with him, I believe he was on his radio show. So if you want to hear Jason with Lore and uh, Marcus Pittman, you can go to Eric Metaxas' website or his podcast and hear those guys on it. They were just on there today. So that should be fun, too. Without any further ado, Jason at Trinity Church at their family camp. Well, it's really great to be here. I drove over from Spokane today and um, and to have my two youngest kids with us, uh, and my wife in the middle there, and uh, Aaron, Cedric, Malachi, and we're excited to be here with you, um, not just because of the lake, although that is part of it. Uh, we're excited for a lot of reasons, but I, I'm really excited here to talk about what, what it means to be hu- a human being, and how it is that Jesus... Uh, redefines or defines truly and most fundamentally what it is to be human. And we're going to be looking at Revelation uh, 5 tonight, verses 9 and 10. And it's a song, so it's appropriate that we uh, hear about it right after we just sang a song. Because this is the 24 uh, elders and the, 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 the beasts and the 24 elders singing a new song together to the Lamb who uh, appears before them as a lion. They hear, they hear the lion speak and they turn around and they see that the lion is also a lamb. And it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign on the earth. Now I want to start off with a a story. One of your own poets has told this story before. 
It starts with a farm girl. And she's the most beautiful farm girl in the land. And there's a farm boy that works for her farm on the land. And day in and day out, he comes in and he serves this farm girl. And she orders him around as she's young. But as she grows up, every time he gets a command from her to do something, he responds as you wish. And she slowly comes to realize that every time she gives him something to do and he responds, as you wish, what he's really saying is, I love you. Now what surprises her in this realization is that she loves him back. Now, he's just a farmhand. And the difficult part about being a farmhand is you get paid pittance. He doesn't have enough to marry this woman, so he says, I'm going to go find my fortune. They stand in front of the farm, and he says, I will be back for you. And she says, what if something goes wrong? And he says, it's true love. Of course, I will make it back. And so he leaves to go off and make his fortune. Unfortunately, he's attacked by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And no one survives the Dread Pirate Roberts. And so the, the news comes back that he has been killed, and she goes into deep mourning. Now, the thing about a beautiful woman is the more she cries, the more beautiful she becomes. And the prince heard about this beautiful farm girl and says, I'm going to marry her. And so he sends off someone to get her, brings her to him, and says, you will be my bride. Now, the prince knows that her true love was killed by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And she is confident that he is coming back. But he's the prince. What can you do when Prince Inslee tells you what you have to do? <laughs> you have to do it. And so... Um, she, the, they begin preparing for the wedding. Uh, they be, and, and as they prepare for the wedding, one of the things um, that, that, that uh, suddenly happens as she is off riding her horse, as she likes to do, because she's a princess now, is she's kidnapped. She's kidnapped, and she's thrown on a boat, and she is taken uh, to the land across the sea. She barely escapes the shrieking eels, which always get louder when they're preparing to feed on human flesh. Uh, but, and she climbs the cliffs of insanity with the help of a giant. And once she makes it to the top, uh, the, the man that has kidnapped her looks back and he says, We're being followed. And this man continues to follow us. And now he's climbing the cliffs of insanity. It's inconceivable. <laughs> and so uh, he leaves his best swordsman, the, 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 the man who everybody knows to be the best swordsman in the land, to defend uh, the cliffs of insanity. Right? And, and this man, as he climbs up, he, he's wearing a mask because they're terribly comfortable. Everyone will be wearing them <laughs> soon. And he, he uh, makes it to the top of the cliff and he begins a sword fight with the greatest swordsman in the land. Right? And, and as they fight, it becomes clear that this man in the mask is a much better swordsman. Now what this man doesn't know 
is that the greatest swordsman in the world is fighting him left-handed. So he switches to his right hand and things begin to move back the other direction. But of course, the man in the mask has also been fighting left-handed because it wouldn't be satisfying to kill your enemy too quickly. We all have been in that situation. (laughs) Think that was an unsatisfying killing of my enemy. It should have made it last longer. But after he bests him, he takes off after the princess who still is uh, being who's still being dragged across the land. And uh, the, the man who's kidnapped her looks at his giant and he says, take care of him. This has gone on too far. Right? He, he, just take, he says, well, I, I don't know how to do that. I only fight mobs. And he says, pick up a rock, stand behind that rock when he comes around the corner and his head is in view, hit it with the rock. The giant says, Obviously, that's how giants take care of people. But when he comes around the corner, he misses. Now, of course, he's the greatest giant in the land. And much like the greatest swordsman, he doesn't want to kill his enemy too quickly. That's unsatisfying. And so he says, look, let's just fight man to man. I put down my rock. You put down your sword. We kill each other like civilized gentlemen. (laughs) But the giant is only used to fighting mobs. And so when he fights just a single man, he's not prepared with the moves that you need. He, it's, he's, it's been a while since he was in the WWF, and last time he was there, he was lifted up on high by Hulk Hogan and smashed. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> so the man in the mask overcomes him, holds, gives him a, a chokehold. He's been practicing his cage moves. Chokehold, sleeper hold, puts him out, taps him on the side of the head, sleep well, dream of large women. And he goes on to fight this man who has been planning the kidnapping of the princess. Obviously now, the most intelligent man that you have ever met. I mean, he's a Sicilian. And they sit down and they begin a battle of wits. And everybody knows that outside of starting a land war in Asia, the second most important thing to know is never get into a battle of wits with a Sicilian when death is on the line. And then he passes out because this man has just bested him in a battle of wits. And so now, the man in the mask has the kidnapped princess. He's taking her away. They're beginning to be... um, tracked now by Prince Humperdinck, who she was supposed to marry, and never trust a man named Humperdinck. I mean, that's just it's the third rule after don't start a land war in Asia and don't get into a battle of wits with a Sicilian when death is on the line. Never trust a man named Humperdinck. Now he is there on their tail, and they're at the top of a cliff, and the man in the mask says, well, I hear you're marrying the prince, she says, I am, but only until my true love comes to get me. He says, your true love? And she says, I recognize you. A man of such cruelty, you must be the dread pirate Roberts, the man that killed my farm boy. He was precious, he was perfect. And he says, I remember your farm boy. I remember him because he begged me, please, please. I've got a true love at home. I need to get home to her. Now it was the sincerity of his pleas that caught the Dread Pirate Robert's attention. 
And he remembers the description of the beautiful and faithful farm girl back home. And he says, I assume it would be you. Except for I hear you're engaged to the princess, or to the prince. This wasn't San Francisco. (laughs) Engaged to the prince. And she says, you mock me once. Never do it again. I died the day he died. Now, Prince Humperdinck comes over the top of the mountain, and she says, and you can die too for all I care. And he pushes, she pushes the masked man down the hill, and he falls, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, and shouts out, as you wish. Of course, she says, oh, my dear sweet Wesley, what have I done? She throws herself down the cliff, which makes perfect sense. I don't know why. (laughs) They get to the bottom of the cliff, And suddenly, his mask has fallen off as he falls down the cliff. And she has realized, as he shouted, as you wish, that this is her farm boy, Wesley. And he gets to the bottom, and he, of course, is concerned and says, are you okay? She says, okay, I can fly if you like. And then they head off into the fire swamp at that point. So I obviously, so I just made this story up off the top of my head right now. I, um... No, this is the story. <laughs> this is the story of the movie The Princess Bride. And if your parents haven't yet shown you The Princess Bride, then you have all of my permission that you need to shame them the entire weekend for their failure as parents. One of the greatest movies ever made, William Goldman, my favorite screenwriter. He and but what makes this moment so wonderful in the in the movie? is when he is falling down, or is, there's two things. First, when she's standing there, and he looks at her, and he says, faithful. He went on and on about how you were faithful. And she says, and she turns to him and says, you have no idea. He, as the the man that loved her, had come to a particular conclusion about what was going on. He was interpreting everything, uh, everything in his life, everything that he had been doing, all of the sacrifices that he had been making in terms of a new fact that he had just learned. The woman he loved had turned on him and gotten engaged to someone else when he had promised her that he would be back. And that fact had turned him into a deep cynic. That fact had turned him into someone who had come to take revenge And she was interpreting everything around the fact that her love had died, had been murdered by the Dread Pirate Roberts. And those facts became the things that gave everything else that they believed their context. Those facts became the the story that framed everything else that was going on in their lives. Right. And, and um, what I want to talk to you about is something in screenwriting or in storytelling that's called a frame narrative. What I do for work is I write screenplays. Right? I, I'm, a, I'm a screenwriter by trade. And one of the things that uh, we use when we're telling a story is called a frame narrative. And it's the story around the story that gives the inside story its meaning. Because if I were to ask you, what is it that The Princess Bride is about... You would say it's a beautiful, beautiful love story about a, uh, a, a man hunting down his true love and rescuing her from an evil prince. And you'd be dead wrong. Because it's the story of a grandfather 
giving his grandson the vocabulary he needs to understand how much he loves him. Because if you remember, the story opens with a grandfather coming into his grandson and opening a book and saying, let me read this to you. And, he says, and, he, and as he reads it, he says, oh, that's a great opening, right? And his grandson, at the beginning, is like, yeah, whatever, Grandpa. I want to get back to my Nintendo. Now, a Nintendo, kids, is an old... <laughs> no, just <to> show you. <laughs> He's playing MLB Nintendo Baseball. Great game. <laughs> Um, now, <laughs> when, but, but it, he is, the frame narrative of the princess bride is the story of the grandfather. And he, it, it pops in every once in a while and he says, are you too nervous? Is it getting too scary? This is, oh, skip the kissing scenes, grandpa. I haven't even entered puberty yet. Right? And then by the end of the book, obviously he has, because he's like, oh, <laughs> kissing scenes don't bother me anymore. Kids, puberty. No, just joking. <laughs> uh, so, the frame narrative is the story around the story that ends up informing everything inside the story and giving it the, the meaning and the, uh, the emotional depth that it needs. Now, God has given history a frame narrative. Everybody has a frame narrative. And the frame narrative that you go all the way back to the beginning with in your life is, and in a society, in a culture, is, is called its myth, its creation myth. Right? And, and every society has one. Where is it that we came from? And that story ends up framing everything that we, in, in, in terms of how we interpret our life day in and day out. Where do I come from? Where did this whole story start? Right now, our culture's um, frame narrative story, its mythos, its, its mythos goes back to evolution. Evolution is the, the, um, the, the frame narrative, the beginning of the frame narrative for our culture's major story. And if you think about it, just for a second, you know, evolution is the story, uh, at least in, the, in its Darwinian version, is the story of competition and, uh, for survival. And whoever is the fittest, whoever is the strongest, is the one that survives. Right? It's, it's as if the story of Cain and Abel was taken and pushed all the way back into history. Right? If Cain and Abel were the first story in the Bible, the way that Romulus and Remus is the first story in the history of Rome, then what that tells us is this place, this story, this, uh, this life that I'm living, it's framed by rivalry, by hatred, by murder. It's framed by a, a lack of resources that we have to fight for. And sometimes we have to kill for. But, but God doesn't give us that frame narrative. He doesn't give the world that frame narrative. That's the frame narrative we've turned around and given it, to, given it ourselves right after the fall. Instead, the frame narrative that God gives us, where the story really begins, is with God creating. Over the course of six days, he sings six verses of a song, recites six verses of a poem, and each verse brings into being a new aspect of creation. And on the sixth day, he, he sings into being us. Right? He sings Adam into being. And he's like, mm, not done yet. Right? And then he pulls a rib out of Adam's side and, and makes Eve out of it, wakes Adam back up. And then he says, now I'm done. 
Adam wakes up, looks at Eve, and says, Whoa, man. And then God says over Adam and Eve, This is very good. Go take dominion. Go multiply. They're like, how do we do that? You'll figure it out. Right? Go fill this place up with more people like you. Because I like that kind of creature. The kind of creature you are, I like them. Go make more of them and fill this place with it. Turn this whole place into a garden. And he takes Adam aside. He says, here's what a garden is. Right? He takes him to the Garden of Eden. And there's nothing there yet. He makes all of the plants grow up. So see how it works? You're going to have to do some science. You're going to have to figure some things out. You're going to have to learn to track the sun, the moon, and the stars. But you'll figure it out. We're going to garden this whole place. That's where it all begins. No, there's no fear. There's no rivalry. It, there's no shame. God begins the story with creation and the declaration that, it, that it's good as he declares it over the king and queen of this new creation that he's made. The priests of creation. And he says, let's go transform this place. Now, of course we did then at that point grasp after a different God. Grasp after a different God than the one that God gave us. We handed over our authority because a serpent came slinking into the garden with uh, lies on his tongue. And we handed our, over our authority to him. But then God kept insisting on pushing us back into gardens. Pushing us back into our priesthood. Pushing us back into dominion. We fill the whole place up with sin. So God fills it all up with water, cleanses it, and starts over again. Puts Noah back in a garden. We mess it up again. God raises up a people. And we're... He, he, he gives us Abraham, he gives us Isaac, he gives us Jacob, he gives us Joseph to lead us, and we're like, we're done with this. So we throw him down a well, we sell him into slavery. Like, let's get rid of the one that God leads us. But Joseph is sent down to Egypt where he's given management over a garden. And God brought, draws all of the people back into the land of Goshen. God is insistent and he keeps pushing us back into gardens, pushing us back into our dominion, pushing us back to be kings and queens and priests again. Now, if the frame narrative that we start with is Cain and Abel, then what we see over and over is those, that, that the central plot points are those points of rivalry where we hurt each other and kill each other. But when we start the story with God's creation and God's establishing us in the garden as kings and queens and priests, we can see that that becomes the narrative of the whole story. God keeps insistent, insistently pushing us back into our dominion. Now, we could go through the whole story of the Old Testament, um, but spoilers, eventually Jesus comes along. If you're only in chapter two, I'm sorry. You should have kept up. I'm a, you can only plug your ears so long and not get spoilers. But Jesus comes along, and in classic Jesus fashion, 
Not only does he come along to rescue us, he actually comes along and reframes even the frame narrative. In Revelation 13, starting at verse 7, it says, It was given unto him to make war with the saints, talking about the beast, and to overcome them, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. The Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So when Jesus comes along, we're going to look... Uh, we're going to look at Revelation 5 in more detail. When Jesus comes along and they begin singing a new song to him about how he was, uh, he was uh, uh, the lamb who was slain, who redeemed us to God by his blood. That event in history of Jesus' death on the cross is so significant an event that even though it happens in the middle of history, it becomes the frame of the narrative of all of history. He is the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. So when we finally get to Revelation 5, where we started, I know it took a while. Long introductions, welcome to the way I talk. We can see that the song of the four living creatures and the 24 elders to the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is the lamb who was slain, is actually a summary of the frame narrative of history. And they sang a new song again, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. You have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Jesus was slain to redeem us to God by his blood. Because God is so insistent on pushing us back to who he created us to be that he sent his son to die for us. He sent his son to die on the cross for us. Because that frame narrative doesn't just frame uh, what it is that we think but that's the frame narrative about what God is up to. Now all of the descendants of Adam are fair game because of Jesus' death on the cross. Every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation is fair game for a return to, king, to, to kingship and priesthood. Because the curse of Adam that is, was on the human race that led to the Cain and Abel world, that led to the rivalry, that led to the murder. All of it has been undone because God is insistent that we were made for kingship and priesthood. Jesus, with his death on the cross, returns us to our original intention. And every person you meet is now fair game. And we're going to talk a little bit about how this affects evangelism tomorrow. But this is what people are for. This is what people are. They're descendants of Adam and Eve. 
They're the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. They're heirs to the royal family of Adam. And they continue to carry the marks of his priesthood. Now sin comes in and it, it warps the use of our priesthood. But you can't escape the fact that we are descendants of the first high priest. Or you can sell the use of your priesthood to other gods like Balaam and his talking ass. But you can't quit your nature. But remember what kind of story this is. God, God, didn't, God didn't respond to our petty Cain and Abel rivalries by joining that story. By stepping in and becoming one of the rivals. He's a garden-giving God. He's the triune God who has been living for eternity in, self-giving, in a self-giving community of love long before he created any of this. So the Garden of Eden was just a reflection, an invitation to join what he had always had. And when we tried to say, no thanks, we'd rather have murder, despair, and uh, destruction alienation he was like mm, no nah, that's not my plan that's not I'm not, I'm not going to settle with that God the Father sent his son Jesus to become a king and a priest in order to die for us when we had earned death so that he could return us to who he made us to be it's like Wesley looking at Inigo Montoya and saying, have you tried piracy? (laughs) That's what I've been up to for a little while. Come on, I'll train you. Jesus is returning us to who we were made to be by inviting us to, to become what he is. He is the great king. He is the high priest. He is the descendant of David, the firstborn of the firstborn of the firstborn, all the way back to Solomon. He's the great king, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Right? Because David conquered Salem. And Melchizedek had been the king of Salem. And so when David sits down on the throne of Salem, he takes the priesthood of Melchizedek into his, uh, into his uh, line, into his kingship, and he renames Salem Jerusalem. So that Jesus can be the priest and the king that then sheds his blood for us so that we can be returned to our kingship and to our priesthood. We're going to be talking uh, tomorrow about how that changes the way that we think about evangelism. And then we'll be talking uh, tomorrow, tomorrow morning, we'll be talking about evangelism. Tomorrow night, we'll be talking about how that changes the way we interact with one another as family members. But in order to do any of that, we have to understand that God created us to be kings and priests. He created us as descendants of Adam and Eve to be kings and priests. That is the narrative that frames our life. 
God running you down over and over and over again and saying, come back over here, dork. Let me put the ring back on your finger. Let me put the priestly robe back where it's supposed to be so that you can get to work gardening this place, bringing it to its intended end. And you can get to work as a priest. We'll we'll be talking about this tomorrow. Bridging, uh, being a bridge between God and the world, as well as oblating, which is the thing the priests do, which we get to talk about tomorrow. But when you ran for it, God ran faster. Your legs were too short to outrun God. The human race's legs were too short to outrun Jesus. And he is insistent that he will undo the works of the devil, as 1 John says, and return us to our original intended beginning. John 19, verse 5, um, is where Jesus comes before Pilate after having been beaten and uh, dressed uh, mockingly by the soldiers. And it reads this. Then... Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When I was young, even young, young kid, seven, eight, uh, into my early teen years, I loved travel stories. Solo dude, nothing but a backpack walking across America, walking across China. Uh, There was a a book by Peter Jenkins called A Walk Across America that I literally read until it broke. I found packing tape, taped it back together, and continued reading it. Uh, Lewis and Clark stories. Uh, I read Lewis and Clark's journals when I was young. I loved hobo stories. Homeless guy jumping on a train, sneaking his way across the uh, mountains. Oregon Trail stories. I got into Columbus, Columbus for a time. I loved Hatchet, Voyage of the Frog, The Hobbit, which is basically just a walk across America in Middle Earth. <laughs> Voyage of the Dawn Treader was my all-time favorite book. It's another book that I had to tape back together I read so many times. In fact, Reap a Cheap, when I was young, was who I wanted to be when I grew up. The, the picture of him hanging off the front of the Don Treader, holding on with his tail, with his nose out in front of the, the dragon, the, the dragon on the front of the Don Treader, his nose hanging off the front, pointing east. We sail east as long as this boat continues, and then I'll get in my coracle and I'll paddle east as long as I can, and then if my coracle sinks, I'll swim east. I'm headed that direction no matter what. Those were the stories that captured my imagination that I couldn't help but read over and over over and over. And as I grew, as I got a little bit older, uh, that the romance of unplugging, heading into the unknown, alone, took on a, a, new, a new flavor. Because as I grew, I realized that there was a deep alienation that I felt in, in myself. I didn't feel like there was a place in the world. I didn't understand it. But I knew that one of the reasons that I loved these stories was because the place where I was 
didn't feel like I fit there. I didn't feel like there was a world that all fit together and I knew, and this is my spot in that world that fits together. It was like I was watching my life from the balcony. I was watching myself live my life and I was sitting in the balcony. I didn't know yet French and so I didn't know there was a word for that. (laughs) And of course the French would be the ones that came up with it. They called it ennui. The feeling that there isn't a spot in the world for you. The feeling of alienation. Uh, I filled that feeling of alienation with skateboards and joke punk. Started going to punk rock shows and listening to the dead milkmen secretly in my room. And and then skateboarding and trying to learn kickflips all day long. But there is actually an answer to that. We talked yesterday about how Jesus is the great high priest. And I'll come back and we'll talk about ennui some more. But just to review yesterday, we talked about how Jesus is the great high priest. um, And that when God created Adam, uh, Adam is created as the first priest. And Adam and Eve together are the, the king and the queen of the world, but they're also the first uh, priestly family of the world. And that that means um, that we are all descendants of that priestly line. We're all priests after the order of Adam, priests after the order of Adam and Eve. And uh, because that is who we are, because that's who, who God created us to be, even when we turn away from God, we do it in a way that a priest would turn away from God. Um, Francis Schaeffer used to call this the mannishness of man, right? That in our nature, we are who God created us to be, right? He created us as men and women. He created us uh, to be kings and to be priests. And so even when we turn away from God, we do it in that kingly and priestly way. And a priest's job is to be a bridge between and then to oblate. Now, you might not have ever heard the word oblate. It's, I love the word oblate. Uh, oblate means to lift up or to lift across or to take across a chasm, um, but it's a vertical chasm, to take across a vertical chasm. Right? So uh, what a priest does is you know, they, let's say, um, they're, they're, doing, um, a, they're, they're taking an offering that is a dove. Kids, girls, I'm sorry. This was what they did to doves back then. Boys, you're welcome. This is what they did to doves back then. Right? They take the dove, and they take it over, and they've got this bowl of, of water, and they would twist the dove's head off. Squeak. And then they would pour the blood in, and then they would mix the blood and the water together, and then they would take a piece of hyssop, and they would dip it in, and they would flip the blood and water at you. And the boys were like, yes. And the girls were like, the poor dove. But it was because they had to, uh, that they were there to create a bridge between God and man, and death was the chasm. Right? Death was the thing that was in the way. And so something to get across the chasm had to die. And what, what the, uh, God began setting up from the very beginning was a sacrificial system. Right? We, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were told, the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. 
right? And right out the gate, they said, fruit, okay, let's do it. And they jump in, they sin, and God says, you will surely die on that day. But instead of us dying, he begins establishing a sacrificial system by taking animals, and they die on our behalf and become our clothes, Right out the gate. God is the first one to do sacrifices in order to teach priests the beginning of the sacrificial system. And so we've got this sacrificial system set up so that priests can lift people across the chasm towards God. That's what priests do. They oblate. They lift things across. The problem is, when we turned away from God... We kept our priestly nature, but we no longer had the relationship with God that we needed to be able to oblate properly, to be able to bridge properly. The problem is now, we're not just priests, we're priests under a curse in a cursed world. God begins cursing. Right right when we sin, he, he begins laying down the curses that come from sin. He gives a curse on the serpent, a curse on the ground, a, a curse on childbearing, a curse on work. He begins, there's a, there's a curse of, of rivalry. There's a curse of shame. There's a curse of exile. And the fundamental curse underneath all of them, the curse of death that was on the, on, on the world now. Now the curse on the ground was, the cur- we, was symbolized by thorns and thistles. When you're telling a story, when you're writing a movie and you take an object and you make it the visual representation of something, they call it charging an object. You charge up an object with emotional resonance. You charge up an image with, uh, the, so that it can represent some, some internal struggle or some, something that's going on within the character. You externalize. They call it externalizing the emotional state of the character into an object. And God externalizes or he charges up thorns and thistles. He said, this is what will represent my curse on the ground, the curse of alienation between the world and Adam and Eve. Because they were supposed to go out and garden it. That was what they were given to do, go out and garden this place. And when when they started gardening, it mostly involved this, ooh, fruit. Ah, I'm a really good gardener. (laughs) The world just volunteered up its fruits. But because of sin, thorns and thistles grew up instead. They had to begin working, uh, and, and, and it became a sweaty, sweaty business to bring the world to its fruitfulness. Our relationship with the world was cursed because our relationship with God was now one of alienation. And, so, and that alienation seeped out in every direction. Now, in the ancient world, I, I got to teach classics for about seven years. And one of the things that you find out really quick about the ancient world is, one, it's really violent. Everything, everything was violent. But they're also constantly trying to find ways out of the alienation. They're always trying, they're, they're like helium balloons and they're constantly trying to tie themselves down somewhere to something. Whether it's through empires or uh, through uh, in coming up with sacrificial systems or through storytelling. They're, they're, they are helium souls trying to float away 
And they're constantly coming up with ways to tie themselves down. And uh, most of it had to do with blood sacrifices and even human sacrifices. In some of the most civilized places in the ancient world, you would find human sacrifices. There's one uh, story of of a a Roman city that had uh, the goddess that was supposed to take care of them had had at some point, they thought, come down and, and sat in a particular tree right outside in front of the, uh, of the city and, um, and said, so long as you continue giving me children, then I will protect your city. And so there were baskets all throughout this tree. And this was right in the middle of the civilization of the Roman Empire. And they would take their uh, firstborn child and they would put it in the basket and let it die thinking that, that, that then that uh, child would ascend into, into the uh, courts of this goddess. And then so long as she was surrounded with children, because that's, that's what she loved, she would protect the city. The Christians used to, they call it, would sneak out in the middle of the night and take the children home. And so uh, Christians in that city were famous for having 14, 15, 16 kids and it was illegal to take the children, and it was a death penalty if you were caught taking one of the children away. And so uh, they just said, no, no, our wives have twins and triplets all the time. <laughs> they called them life raids. So it's, er, and that's basically early planned parenthood, and they're going and rescuing the children. But they were looking for ways to find protection in a world that they thought was out to get them. Right, in a world that they were alienated from. It, it was a world that was too dangerous to live in because it was a world filled with thorns and thistles. And so they protected themselves with blood. But it was always like holding a beach ball underwater. Right, where you could hold it down, but it's always trying to escape and jump up. Right? The alienation was like that. Well, then Jesus comes along and he says... Hook yourself to me. Right. And then he wanders the world through his evangelists, cutting all of the strings that they, that they think are holding the helium down and grabbing the balloons and taking them to himself. Right. And so uh, now we're beyond that. We, we don't have any of those ancient world connections, but then we've turned away from Jesus again as a culture. But Jesus, and Jesus has already clipped all of the strings. It's like Tom Bombadil dancing cutting strings, or like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, dancing across the bridge. Don't jump there, you'll die. Don't jump there, you'll die. Come this way, there's a feast. But because Jesus has already taken care and said none of those things in the ancient world worked, when we've turned away from Jesus as a culture, what we found is nothing. We found emptiness. We found a void again. There's a, a modern German philosopher named Heidegger. Just one, one philosophy story. Heidegger was uh, the philosopher. He's, he's famous for inventing deconstructionism. So you might have heard of that or heard of him. But he writes a, uh, he, he wrote an, an article called um, What is Metaphysics? Right? And his conclusion was, so metaphysics is, it used to be the study of what a thing is and what a thing is for. Right? And, but he said, 
But in the modern world, because of, of the scientific rev revolution, what we have learned is that things aren't anything. Things are just how matter happens to be put together right now in the moment. So he says, what is metaphysics? It's nothing. No thing has a nature. No thing has a, you can't say this is what it is and this is what it's for, because it just happens to be a collection of matter held together in this moment, in this shape, but that matter won't be that way for long. Even a person that you meet, they're just a collection of atoms. They're just cells. They're just a clump of cells held together in this shape in this moment. But eventually, they'll die, they'll disintegrate, and they'll become dirt and, or something else. Get eaten by a turtle and end up turtle poop. It's the obvious way to go, right? <laughs> so he says, metaphysics is nothing. He says, the problem is, people have this pesky priesthood. And this is what he says. This pesky priesthood that makes them want to stand between things. And he said, so they uh, find out that they are priests of nothing. That their mind reaches out to bridge the chasm with the unknown. And when they discover there's nothing there, they discover that they are priests of nothing. And he says, so all we have left is nihilism. The ability to define everything by what it's not. Because nothing is anything, so it only can be described as what it's not. So the natural state of mankind then is alienation. Now what's so hard about reading Heidegger is you're like, you're so right while being wrong. <laughs> if there is no God, he is absolutely right. That the fact that we have this impulse towards a priesthood into a void of nothingness would be just despair and alienation is all that there is. But this is the shape of the alienation that your friends and your family and your neighbors are swimming in. And, uh, like Kuiper says, we can, never, uh, we can never think that the water that we're swimming in doesn't affect us. Right? That the cultural water we're swimming in doesn't affect us. This is actually the alienation that we all bump into. And sometimes we jump into. This is the alienation that I grew up in. And so long, and, and we're going to be talking a little bit about evangelism in the conclusion, but so long as the gospel that we preach is simple behavior modification, if we think that's the good news, that behavior modification is the point, we're going to be unsuccessful. Because therapeutic deism isn't any more helpful than therapeutic atheism to a ghost that's haunting the balcony of its own life. We need a gospel that can return us to the world, that can return us to creation, that can return us to an actual place so that we look and we say, I know where I fit. And to a world that is, is full to the brim 
with people that think of themselves as ghosts riding around on gorillas. Let me explain. <laughs> or we, we think of ourselves as, what, what is our body? Well, we're just an animal. We happen to have this mind that can think and that, that maybe has the levers of, that make the animal move itself around. But we're just an animal. We, there's no way to all of the rhetoric that people hear all the time. It's just a fetus when talking about abortion. It's just a fetus. It's not a real, it's just a clump of cells, right? Literally, that's all you are in that same definition, right? We're, the mom is just a clump of cells too. It's not just the baby that turns out to be just a clump of cells, right? In, in, and that's Heidegger's point. We're just a clump of cells. So the fact that our mind can think in objective categories is actually terrifying. It's actually a curse. If we're just a clump of cells, to be able to think also objectively becomes a curse. And there's no way that coming along and saying, well, what's the good news? You can have a little bit more self-control. You can stop doing this, you can stop doing that. That's not good news to a ghost riding around on the shoulders of a gorilla. We need a gospel that actually reintegrates us into reality. A gospel that, that says that the, the thing that has alienated us can be moved out of the way and be, we can be returned to have a real place in the world. So let's look at John 19.5, then Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, behold the man, behold the man. Pilate recognizes something about Jesus that often we as modern Christians have forgotten. Jesus is the man. We remember that Jesus is the full revelation of God. If you want to know what God is, lo is like, look at Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God. He is God incarnate. He is the perfect picture, the perfect uh, revelation of who God is. If you want to know God, look at Jesus. But also, if you want to know what mankind is, if you want to know what it is to be human, we look at Jesus. Jesus is the full revelation of God, but he's also the full revelation of mankind. He's the full revelation of humanity. And this is, this is the, the, the definition of Chalcedon. That's what this, the, the, the third ecumenical council was all about. Jesus is, he's the full revelation of God. He's also the logos, the word, the principle that holds all things together. He is the, the principle that gives everything else its definition. But Colossians tells us he is the image of God. He is the imago Dei, the same thing that Adam was when Adam was created. Jesus is the, the full revelation of the image of God in man. He is the new Adam. He is the new source of restored humanity. Our original humanity comes to us because we're descendants of Adam and Eve. Our restored humanity comes to us because we've been born again into the family of Jesus Christ. He's the new king. He's the one that's come in a purple robe. 
He's wearing the new crown. And what's the crown made of? Thorns. He's wearing the thorns and the thistles on his head. He's taking the curse of alienation onto himself. God has been charging up the object of thorns and thistles all this time throughout the Old Testament so that Jesus can have them wrapped around his head and he can transform the thing that was a curse into a crown. Because Jesus came as a lot of things, but central to it is he came as the curse breaker. He came as, as the warrior that was going to swallow the curses of God into himself, wear them as he goes up onto the cross. He is cursed because he is the one who hangs on a tree. And every single one of the curses, he embodies, takes on to himself, wears as a victorious warrior, and nails them to the cross. Jesus' death on the cross is the solution to our alienation from the world. It's the solution to the fact that we bob along and don't have a place. It's not a solution in the way we would expect, though. Because he doesn't just grab hold of us and staple us back in. The solution to our alienation is that he is alienated from the Father on the cross. He's nailed up to the cross and he goes into exile from his Father. And he cries out on the cross the first words of Psalm 22 Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sambachthani, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He goes in to alienation. He goes into exile on our behalf. From all eternity, he's been in perfect fellowship with the Father. But he goes into exile on the cross in order to rescue the exiled from their sin. And in fact, all of the curses... Jesus takes care of on the cross, including crushing the head of the serpent as he's taken up onto Golgotha, the place of the skull, and the cross is shoved right into the top of the skull. All of the curses are broken when Jesus dies for us on the cross. Now, what does this have to do with evangelism? We tend to evangelize in terms of behavior modification, Somebody comes to us and they say, man, I've got problems. And you're like, yeah, you do. <laughs> Look at the way you do that and the way you do that and the way you do that. And, and we think that the problem is their behaviors. But the problem is their alienation, their alienation from God, their alienation from the world. All of their behaviors are flowing out of that. Right? If we want... If we want to answer, though, alienation with the good news, then we have to be living a life that is fighting that alienation, living a life 
that is, uh, that, that is reintegrated, living a life that is not full of rivalry. The best thing that you can do to, if you want to be evangelistic is to live a life that fights alienation with grace. With confession of our own sin and grace for other sin. Right? It's learning how, because it's lies in the first place that broke everything and caused the alienation. And confession means saying along with God what is true. When we confess our sins, when we confess our faith, we're saying along with God what is true. Right? So let's say you got... You get angry at your neighbor because he keeps mowing on to your part of the lawn. So you pick up a brick, as one is wont to do, and you go out and you smash the windshield of his car. Because you've had too much. Trying to come up with an example that hopefully no one has ever actually done. So that we can all think about the problem objectively together. And so that there's not someone sitting out there saying, who told him? That's what usually happens. Right? So you, you go out and you smash in your neighbor's windshield again. And, uh, and your neighbor comes out and he's like, brother, we go to church together. <laughs> and he says, you can't treat people that way. And you get convicted of your sin. You're like, you're right. And so you go to confess your sin. <sighs> I shouldn't have acted in anger. I shouldn't have tried to hurt you. I shouldn't have broken the windshield of your car. That was sin. Please forgive me. I'm going to go buy you another windshield. I'm going to take care of it. And he, of course, says, I forgive you. You guys hug, make up, and you go have the Lord's Supper together that Sunday. Right? We fight the alienation with confession, with saying, I agree with you, Lord, on the kind of world that we live in, and I agree with you on the kind of world that we're supposed to have. And then more importantly, with grace. Right? We cross the chasm of other people's sins with forgiveness. We restore and, and move beyond rivalry with forgiveness. Uh, and, but but it's, it's, one, it's even more than that, though. Because there, if we live in a world that is fully integrated and held together by Jesus, if Jesus is the man, then the way that we say, behold the man with our lives is by imitating Jesus. Is by saying, this is how Jesus lives his life. This is what Jesus has done. I'm going to live that way. So that if somebody comes up to you and says, man, your kids... They like you, they do what you say, they talk back minimally. <laughs> right. uh, you guys seem to have a good relationship. How do you do it? Right. Our temptation in that moment is to think, you know, here's my manual on spanking. Right? This is how I accomplished that thing that you want. Right? Because we think that uh, good advice is, it, 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 we, we will give advice if we think that the gospel is behavior modification. But if the gospel is, behold the man, 
then even in everything we do, what we're going to say is, okay, how has Jesus treated me? Kids, come here. I need someone to practice on. How has Jesus treated his wife? Wife, come here. I got to treat somebody the way Jesus does. Husband, come here. I got to imitate Jesus a little bit. Right? If, if the whole thing is held together by behold the man, then when somebody asks for advice, the answer should be, well, let's see, what would Jesus do in that situation? Right? That's what I try to do. How, did, how has the Father treated me? Well, I look at Jesus to find out, and then I imitate him. So every even question for advice becomes... And the answer becomes, behold the man. Behold the man who broke sin's hold on me. Let me tell you about Jesus a little bit. Now, this was something that uh, I actually learned from my wife, watching the way that young moms would come up to her in the park and say, wow, how do you get your kids to be like that? And she'd say, well, let me tell you about how Jesus has treated me. I'm just doing what I can to imitate him with the way that I treat my kids. And I was like, you're brilliant. How did you come up with that? And she said, come up with what? <laughs> She's like, that's just the truth. Um, but we've seen the way God has brought people into our lives over and over and brought people to our dinner table over and over and over who come in saying, I just don't know what to do. I just need some rules. I just need like a how-to manual. And we have seen people that have had how-to manuals stacked to their roof whose lives are in shambles because they have not yet beheld the man who took the curse from them. We had a young gentleman that lived underneath us. Um, Gentleman might be an overstatement. And he, he and his friends um, used to uh, sit in the living room and smoke pot. And we lived in an apartment complex or an apartment building that, I don't know, 100 years old. It was old enough that it didn't hold the smoke in, in place, right? It would seep up into our house, and, but he, we, into our apartment. But, but in order to get to our apartment, we had to walk by his back door, and he used to sit out there. And, and so um, I started saying, like, okay, here's a neighbor. Let's get to know him. And so there's very few doors that chocolate and whiskey won't open. And so I um, used to go down with a couple of glasses and a bottle of whiskey, and, and my wife would make brownies. And, um, and we'd go, hey, what are you up to? You want to sit on the porch? And he'd smoke cigarettes, and we'd drink whiskey, and we'd chat and get to know each other. And um, well, but, but when we brought one of our kids home from the doctor or from the hospital when he was a newborn as a preemie, and, um, the smoke filling up the house became a problem, right? Got a preemie, got lung issues. And, and so the, the, uh, <laughs> we had already had our previous apartment had had pot smoke filling up the house problems. And I, you know, came home from work one day, because my wife was like, hey, our house is filled with pot smoke. I'm really concerned about it. And I was like, in my mind, because I was a young husband and I didn't know yet, I thought, okay, she's probably overstating it, 
right? As I get home and open up the back door and it's like, poof. It's like, you guys, what are you guys hotboxing in here for? And right as I walk in, my oldest daughter, who's about three at the time, comes out and says, Mom, do we have any Cheetos? (laughs) My wife looks at me and says, your children have the munchies. You've got to do something about this, right? We have... And so, so we end up moving, and, that, and in a new place, it's suddenly filling up with pot smoke, and I'm like, Lord, what is going on? So go down, knock on the door. Friend, my house is filling up with pot smoke. We just brought a preemie home. I don't care if you smoke pot, but you can't do it here because it's, it's filling up our apartment. And I was like, if, and this, is, this, this was the early 2000s, so marijuana is still illegal, if you do, I'm going to have to call the police on you. And he's like, dude, bro, no problem. Won't happen again. Right. Three weeks later, it's like, What's is there a skunk? What's going on? Oh, no. Right, smoke a pot. Call the cops. Cops show up at his door. Right. About, my timelines are never off. In my mind, it was about a week later. I don't know how long it was. In reality. Because one of the things I've been alienated from is, the, is a properly functioning calendar in my imagination. <laughs> but a, so about a week later, in the middle of the night, knock on the door, midnight. Like, that's not normal. Even in that neighborhood, that wasn't normal. So go down and look through the window, and it's this guy that I just called the cops on, that the police literally came to, had him come out to the front yard, and they had a conversation with him. And I'm like, honey, go lock yourself in the bedroom with the kids. I'm going to peek through the door, see what's going on. Open the door, and he says, I just want to say thank you. I'm like, what? <laughs> like, nobody's ever done anything that nice to me before. And I was like... Which, which thing are you talking on me? Talking about? And he said, warned me before you called the cops on me. <laughs> it's like, I just don't have anybody in my life that that's, that's that nice. It's like, my friend, you have had a hard life. Come on in. He's a little drunk. Comes on in, starts telling me his life story. Teenage, as a teenager, he'd run away from home. Hadn't talked to his parents since. He was in his early 20s. And he had just been bouncing from job to job, trying to, trying to find footing in his life. And I was like, you know, what you actually need is Jesus. He's like, I thought you were going to say that. He's <laughs> <Right? laughs> like, so, somebody at one point gave me the C.S. Lewis book, so I never read it, but it sits on my shelf and haunts me. <laughs> right, so just explain to him, and he's like, okay. And so we pray together. It's like, but you know what you need to do? You got to call your parents. He's like, okay. So he uses my phone, calls his mom. He hasn't talked to his mom in years. And turns out his parents have become Christians while after he left. And he, she and her prayer group have been praying for him specifically. And, um, and so he uh, ends up moving back home 
uh, to, to close to his parents again. So he becomes a Christian, starts going to church, moves back home, reunites with his parents. About a year later, he shows up at our, my door again with his new girlfriend. He wants us to meet her. He says, oh my gosh, look at this. I met this girl at church. She's great. Um, and to say thank you. And, and uh, we, it, it was not, if, um, if the good news was simple behavior modification, then what he would have needed was rehab. But that is not the good news. His problem is that he is alienated. And he knows it because he hasn't talked to his parents in seven, eight years. He's alienated from the world. He's alienated from the people that he should be with. He's alienated, and it all stems from an alienation from God. And all it took was to see some non-alienated life. It's the opposite of seeing alien life. (laughs) For him to say, that's where I go when when, when things fall apart. That's what I don't have. Because the good news is behold the man. That there is a way to have your humanity restored to what it's intended to be. There is a way to return to the world, to return to reality, and you can live the way that you're intended to be. And it turns out, if we're all created to be priests, and if, like we saw yesterday, that, that everybody is fair game because Jesus died so that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people would be brought back into their proper relationship with God and the world. And if, every one of our, uh, and, and if every one of us are priests, then every one of us has the opportunity day in and day out to do what priests do, which is deliver grace. Deliver grace that restores us to who we were intended to be. And the central way we do that is the same thing the pilot did here. It's just point and say, behold the man. He's the one that we follow. He's the one that we imitate. And he's the one that died on the cross to break every curse, to take every distance away, to destroy all of our guilt to unravel all of our fear, and to cover all of our shame. When we live integrated lives that are not alienated from the world, then evangelism is going to happen. And all we have to do is be ready to point people to Jesus. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to be good at apologetics. We just have to be ready to say, behold the man. Well, we have been, uh, hopefully, I've been, in, I've been enjoying our time. I hope you guys have been as well. Um, <laughs> and last, uh, this morning, we were talking a little bit about um, the importance of uh, an integrated understanding of the universe or the fact that we live in an integrated universe. And I started out by telling you a little bit about uh, my own experience recognizing that I didn't feel as if I had a place, as if there wasn't a, a, an integrated universe into which I personally fit. Um, and, and here's what changed for me. Right? 
a friend from my soccer team, ninth grade, Kyle, said, hey, you should come to church with me. And I was like, Kyle, you know I'm an atheist, right? And he's like, yeah, but we're going roller skating. And I was like, I do like roller skating. <laughs> and so he invited me to come along and, and uh, go roller skating with his youth group. And there was a sign at the back, um, a place to sign up if you wanted to go on a retreat. And I was like, I've never been on a retreat before. And he's like, yeah, but it's a disco retreat. I was like, I do like disco. <laughs> and so I signed up and went on a disco retreat. And God, uh, and, and through the, the people there, was introduced to Jesus and discovered, before I understood anything about the integrating point, uh, the, the integrated universe, found Jesus, who is the one that holds it all together. And I worked my way out from there to come to discover other aspects of the universe. Now, but because God created a world that does all fit together, because he created a world that is a poetic masterpiece, because he created a world that, that, does, uh, that does link all together and fit and it has a place for everyone, meeting Jesus was the beginning and what was uh, enough in the long run. Now, uh, I've worked in movies and have, have uh, worked in movies and have been talking about different movies and, and figure why stop. <laughs> Here's a little known fact. The zombie, as we currently know, was created by a Christian. Not the, I mean, the idea of the zombie. Not a real zombie. That was created by the mall. But <laughs> this, uh, there was a, a director. He was a young director, young, uh, raised in a Christian home. And he was actually walking through a mall in the 60s. And he was this new mall. Everybody was really excited about it. Brand new stores everywhere. You may have never ever seen a brand new mall because now they're all old and barely holding together. Um, but he was walking through a mall and he was watching people go store to store to store and uh, take in the sights and the sounds and the advertisements. And he said, you know, if we're not careful, this could be bad for us. If we don't begin thinking about taking care of our souls... Something might go wrong. And as he was walking out of the mall, he had the idea for a monster movie of what would a body without a soul be like? And he said, well, it would be like this mall. Well, what would it eat? Brains. <laughs> and so he came up with this idea for a monster movie. He began writing this, this movie with these bodiless, uh, bodies without souls wandering through a mall, grabbing people, eating their brains. And, and uh, he said that would make a great monster movie. Now, all they could afford was an old broken down barn. And so the first zombie movie was inspired by that. Uh, and, uh, but it was filmed in a barn because 10 friends each put in $10,000, and they had $100,000. They filmed the first zombie movie, and it invents an entire new genre. And, uh, but when they made the sequel, Dawn of the Dead, after the Night of the Living Dead, they, they had enough money to actually put it in a mall like it was originally, uh, it was originally um, 
conceived, right? And because monster movies, in, in the way that Christians have always used monster movies, is that uh, the, monster, the monster represents something that all of us are going to have to fight, usually something inside of us that we're going to have to fight, right? Zombies are materialism run amok. Frankenstein is scientism uh, run amok. Uh, Forbidden Planet is the dangers of Freudianism. Dracula is lust without society's limiting effects. Um, Jason from the Halloween movies is the generation gap. Uh, It turned into a monster. What if people came up with no memories and no traditions of went before them? What went before them? What would happen? Right? Monster movies, when used properly, are a way of revealing to the audience, to ourselves, a monster that we all have to face down, that we all have to fight, and usually it's something within us. Right? When we turn within, there are all sorts of monsters lurking around within us because of sin. Now, zombies and, and the temptation to cannibalize our friends and neighbors and family... Um, <laughs> if you think about the, uh, the way that, that uh, God made the world and, and made us as priest kings, there's actually something really interesting about this, and it answers your question about the psalm. Um, we're going to look at Matthew 14 together. Matthew 14 says, and at that time, this is Jesus, his, his fame is growing Throughout, uh, throughout the land. And it says, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus. And he said unto, unto his servants, this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. He's come for me. All of his mighty works show that this is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. Right? He's, got some, he's got some guilt issues that he needs to work through. But it explains why. For Herod had laid hold on John the Baptist and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake. Herodias just means Mrs. Herod, for his wife's sake, his, who was his brother Philip's wife. For John had said unto him, it's illegal for you to marry your brother's wife, which was true. And when, we, when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted John as a prophet. But it was Herod's birthday, and things get wild on Herod's birthday. And so the daughter of Herodias danced before them all and pleased Herod. And so he promised in an oath to give her whatever she would ask. And she was beforehand instructed by her mother to say, Give me John the Baptist's head on a charger or on a serving platter. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and because those which sat with him to eat, um, he he commanded it to be given to her. And he sent and beheaded John in prison. And his head was brought to him on a serving platter and given to the damsel. And she brought it to her mother. And the disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Now, that's a weird story. There's a couple of things weird about it, but the thing I want to focus in on that's so weird about it is that they're at a feast, or they're eating at a table, and they bring out the head of John the Baptist on a serving platter, like it's part of the meal, right? And they deliver 
this severed head on the serving platter. That's weird. Even back then, that would have been considered weird. But it goes on. It says, but when Jesus heard of it, he departed from there by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people heard about that, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed the sick. And when it was the evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place. And the time is now past. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the, vigil, in, into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said unto them, They do not need to depart. You give them something to eat. And they said unto him, We have here only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, Bring them here to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And he took the five loaves and the two flesh, fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat. And they were filled, and they took up the fragments and remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And then Jesus goes up into the mountain to pray. Now, What's really interesting about the way Matthew tells these stories is he's in the middle of telling the story of Jesus, and he's been telling it all in chronological order. This happened next, and then this happened next. And then he stops, and he goes back in time, and he tells two stories side by side. And he tells us that he's doing this. Right? This is the time when, it, when Herod hears that Jesus is getting famous, and the guilt uh, it's almost like a Shakespearean play. The guilt is plaguing him such that he hears somebody is getting famous and he immediately thinks, oh, the ghost of John the Baptist is out to get me. Right? If you've ever seen Macbeth, it's very Macbeth type of scene. The ghost is out to get me. And Matthew says, and let me tell you why. And he tells two stories side by side to show the two different kinds of kings that you're dealing with. The first kind of king, Herod, he's throwing a feast, and because, he, because of his fear, because he worries about other people, because he makes a rash vow, he ends up killing one of God's people and serving him for dinner. Herod's kingdom is a kingdom that eats people. But then it shows Jesus as king, uh, Jesus as kingship, the kingdom that Jesus, uh, the kind of kingdom that Jesus has. And Jesus is out in the wilderness with nothing but five loaves and two fish, and yet everybody walks away full. We've got two kinds of kingdoms here. Herod's kingdom, a kingdom where people are eaten, and Jesus' kingdom, a kingdom where people are fed. Two kinds of kings, two kinds of kingdoms. Suddenly, the imaginative... Uh, the, the, uh, the imagination that comes up with the zombie doesn't seem quite so strange. In fact, though, in Galatians 5, Paul says, uh, Paul says this. He says, all of the law, this is 5 verse 14, all of the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Okay, got it. Good. Know that one. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you do not eat one another. Take heed that you be not consumed one of another. He says, careful not to be zombies that eat one another's brains. If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed by one another. He says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. He says, you don't want to be a body without its spirit attached. He's describing a zombie. Walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you cannot do what you would. But if you're led of the spirit, you are not under the law. But the works of the flesh manifest They are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, which is acting out of of, uh, lustful desires, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelings, things like this, of which I told you before, as I have also told you in times past, those which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul says there is a way to live that treats other people as consumables. That treats other people as something to bite and devour. That you think that is, if I eat them, then I will walk away full. He says, don't live that way. That's not a loving way to live. And then verse 22 he says, but... Right, so he says... If you bite and devour one another, take heed that you are not consumed by one another. And then he explains what that means. Here's all of the ways or some of the ways that we treat one another like consumables. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. Against such there is no law. He says, none of those things are illegal. None of the fruit of the Spirit is illegal. We do treat it like that sometimes, right? Especially patience. (laughs) We all tell people, don't pray for patience. Why? Is it illegal? No, it's not illegal. Pray for patience. You'll get it. And not even the hard way. Well, okay, you'll get it the hard way. That's how we all get it. (laughs) But, But what do you do with fruit? You eat it, right? Well, in this case, actually, you feed it to people. Right? He says, don't bite and devour one another. If you do, you'll consume one another. Instead, feed one another on the fruit of the Spirit. Right? The same way that Herod's kingdom is a, is a kingdom that consumes people, that treats people like consumables that you take in, that you use for your own purposes. He says, it, and then there's Jesus' kingdom where Jesus feeds people. Paul's making the same point here. If you bite and devour one another... Be careful, you'll consume one another. But instead, feed one another by producing the fruit of the Spirit. And this is what it looks like to feed one another. Love. Joy. Peace. 
patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. None of these things are illegal. Now, we've all experienced this before. Right? We've, we have gone, we've had something go wrong in our lives, and we don't know what to do. And we go to somebody, we go to somebody and we say, oh my gosh, I'm so frustrated. I'm so struggling so bad. I don't know what to do. And this person has peace. And they lend it to us for the afternoon. Or we don't have it ourselves, but they have it. And we get to go in and feed on their peace. When I was a young man, 18 years old, I did everything in my power to crash and destroy my life one summer. thought it would be a good idea to, to do everything I could all at once. <laughs> and the, the man who had discipled me throughout high school had warned me, hey, you know, if you keep doing some of these things you're doing, you know what's going to happen, right? right? So here I am post, post getting kicked out of school. I'm I don't have any place to live. I don't have a job. I, and I show up at his office door in tears. And he says to his secretary, I'll be back after lunch, right? And he takes me out. I say, my, my life is over. I was emotional. Kid. Grew out of it, right? <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> Never going to have, I'm never going to be the person that I thought I was going to be. God is done using me. He's like, you can trust God. I was like, I don't think I can. He said, it's okay. Let me trust him for you. And I sat with him and I cried in a pew in a dark church for about an hour. And fed on his faith. Because I had none. I had none left. But faith is the fruit of the Spirit. We feed people on it. We feed one another with the fruit of the Spirit because we are priests. We stand in the gap between God and people. It's not our fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. We deliver it. So God works up within us peace, patience, joy, long-suffering, gentleness, Love, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. And other people are fed on the fruit of the Spirit. Here's one of the things that I love about zombies. No matter how many people they catch and eat, even though they just are dragging one foot, they always end up catching somebody. Brains, brains. I mean, you can hear them coming. <laughs> but, it, but that's the reality, right? Like, we would, all be, we would all end up caught because we'd get in a fight. We'd be arguing about something stupid, and we'd be like, I don't even remember what the argument is about. You're like, I don't, what were we arguing? That just comes jumps in, right? And we'd get eaten. But no matter how many people a zombie catches, no matter how many brains it gets, it's still hungry. Because eating people never satisfies. No matter how many times we bite and devour one another, 
We are never satiated. We are always hungry. In fact, we're hungrier because we thought we were going to get something that would feed us. We thought we were going to get something that would satisfy, but it doesn't. But it's not because we aren't supposed to be hungry. I mean, aren't supposed to be full. But it's because we're supposed to be full on Jesus. John 6, 47, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say unto you, he that believes on me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. What do you do with bread? You eat it, right? Hopefully, you guys know what to do with bread. You eat it. You guys are Presbyterians, so I know we don't talk. When if I was at a Baptist church, you guys would have shouted it. Of course, you wouldn't have had me if you were a Baptist church. <laughs> I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and are dead. But this is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eats this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The Jews, therefore, strove among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whosoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eats my flesh and drinks my blood dwells in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eats me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers did eat manna and are dead. He that eats this bread shall live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, this is a passage that because of different debates throughout history surrounding the Lord's Supper, we know more about what it doesn't mean than we know about what it means. And in fact, I've heard a bunch of sermons on this explaining to me what it doesn't mean, which is the worst. It's the worst. That's why we get caught by the zombies. We're busy during debating. We'd probably get into a theology debate and throw somebody to the zombies. For a hair. Yeah, you're a heretic. You'd be like, I'm the only real Christian left. <laughs> we, we were created full, or we were created to be full. But we weren't created full. When Adam was placed into the garden, he's told, look, you can eat it all. That feeling in your stomach That's called hunger. That's on purpose. That was my idea. This whole place is edible. But as it goes on, we discover that hunger was a little prophet that God put inside of us. We are born, we are created hungry for food because we were created for more than this. And every time we get hungry... It's the little prophet inside our stomach saying, Jesus was the one. 
who is the bread of life. God is the one who fully satisfies. We live in a poetically integrated universe in which all of it is on purpose. When we are created with hungry souls only satisfied by God. Full people don't bite and devour. So if we're biting and devouring our neighbor, it's because we haven't fed fully on Christ. Empty people will bite and devour the whole world and still be empty. But a person satiated with the bread of life will look for ways to feed others on the fruit of the Spirit because they're full. They'll look for ways to become people that produce the fruit of the Spirit because they're full. Love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, goodness, self-control, faith. They'll look for ways to feed others because they've been fed by God. Now you are the kind of creature that the more pleasure you experience, the greater your capacity for pleasure. The more joy you experience, the greater your capacity for joy. We've all experienced this. In philosophy, they call it the law of something, the law of non-returning residuals. Nope. Diminishing returns, thank you. Slipped out of my head. They call it the law of diminishing returns in philosophy. And my philosophy professor, I was a philosophy major, the University of Idaho, and my philosophy professor said, this is how heroin works. I was like, oh good, this is why I joined the philosophy department. <laughs> he said, you take a little bit of heroin and you're like, wow, that was amazing. And then you come back and you take a little bit of heroin again, and you're like, not as good as last time. So you take a little bit more. So you take a little bit more. And then you're dead. Right. But he said, that's also how a great symphony works. I remember where I was sitting in the, in, uh, in the music hall at Whitworth when I first heard St. Matthew's Passion. I, I was glued to my chair. I had never heard a symphony like this before. I had never experienced a symphony like this before. And I couldn't wait to go home and pull up a CD and hear it again. And I put on a CD because it was... The 90s. So I put on a CD. The internet had just barely been invented. And I sat down, I turned it all the way up, and I sat down and I listened through it again and I thought, oh my gosh, this is the greatest piece of music ever written. And I said, guys, to my, to my dorm mates, you gotta come hear this. So they put down their video games. They came in and I was like, listen to this. And I put it on. And the third time in a row, I was like, Okay, it's not quite as good as it was two times ago. And my, all the guys in my dorm were like, what is wrong with you, man? And they went back to doom, too. Um, <laughs> but, and we tend to think, and the way my philosophy professor described it to me was that the more times you experience something, the less novelty there is, and so it's just not uh, as good as it was the first couple of times, because we were the ones that actually added meaning to it from where we sat. 
But as I've grown as a Christian, as I've experienced more, what I've come to realize is that it actually works the other way around. When you experience something amazing, you grow. But the created thing doesn't. And so when you experience it, it doesn't fill you quite to the edges the way it did the first time. But it's because your capacity to experience joy has grown. And so we hunt around and we look and we find a new thing. We experience it and we say, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And our capacity to experience joy grows a little bit more. And people get older and the created things don't fill them quite the way they used to. Because we were created to experience God for eternity. Remember what the beginning of the story was. The beginning of the story is God created us, put us into a garden, put us together and said, it is very good. Go out and garden this place. Enjoy one another. And we mess that up. But here's what the end of the story is. You were created for eternal life. And that eternal life is God adopting you into the family. The family that existed from all eternity as a life-giving community of love. For all eternity, that's what we're created for. So that little bit of hunger that you felt when you were born as a baby that made you cry was the beginning of this world whispering to you. You were created for an eternity with God. And you're the kind of creature that every time you experience joy, every time you experience pleasure, every time you experience love, you expand. And so without something that, it, that continues to be bigger and greater than you, you will be unsatisfied. But God is infinite and eternal. God, the Father, Son, and the Spirit, is an infinite and eternal community of life-giving love. And you will spend your eternal life growing in your ability to enjoy and experience that life-giving love. Growing in your ability to, to experience and give that life-giving love. Without an eternal God, we would be what Heidegger calls us. A joke. Because there would be no satisfaction. But because Jesus came and died on the cross, and he took away that distance between us and God, he restored us to what he said he was going to give us in the beginning, but also restores us to eternal life that we were intended for from the beginning. And resets the frame narrative, both the beginning of the frame narrative, but the end of the frame narrative, that goes off into eternity. By faith, we can bring that coming, uh, uh, that coming life into the present.
because the love and the joy and the peace and the patience, the gentleness, the goodness, the faith and the self-control is a description of what that community is going to be like forever. Because of that, by faith, we can look at what it's going to be at the end of the frame narrative, pull it into the present. We can look at our families and say, I should be more joyful. That would feed my family. I should grow in peace. That would feed my family. I should try patience for the first time. You come home and patient with your kids, they just all pass out. <laughs> Who are you and what'd you do with my dad? Or gentleness. I guess, I mean, we're reformed, we don't do gentle. <laughs> Goodness, self-control, faith. Right? These are the things that your family needs to feed on. Because your family was created, the people in your family were created to be a part of the family of the triune God into all eternity, and this is what that family looks like. This is what holds together the integrated world. God created it. He intended it for a particular purpose. When we tried to ruin it, he kept pulling it back to the garden, pulling it back to the garden, pulling it back to the garden. Because he has plans for it off into eternity. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for the way that you created, the way that you put this place together. Thank you that you do have a place for each of us within it. Thank you that that place is not uh, just a simple temporary place where we fly in and fly out and disappear, but that you have an eternal place in this story for each one of us. Lord, we pray that you would produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Lord, our, our deepest desire is to be people that feed one another. But you know our weaknesses, you know the difficulties, you know our stories, you know how hard it can be to break out of the habits of the flesh. Well, we pray that your spirit would dislodge us from our sins, dislodge us from our habits. That your spirit would cultivate the, uh, the fruit of the spirit in our lives. We pray that you would transform our families, transform our churches, transform our, our neighborhood through us, and that you would do it by uh, turning us into people that feed one another rather than eat one another so that your kingdom will be uh, visible here on earth. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We get to do some more Q&A. Uh, what time do we need to head to the fire pit? Where's Nate? No hurry. So I'm saying after this, so we got a few minutes. Oh, perfect. Okay. So we got some time. Okay. Uh, thank you. That was 
Ouch. <laughs> that was convicting. Well, I was thinking of you the whole time. I know. So. <clears throat> Told me you were going to be here. So, so. was I. <laughs> um, okay, so a, a couple questions. And, then, and if, again, I'm going to ask you guys if you have questions too. So um, if you have some, think, think them through, write them down. Because um, uh, I think there's so much to talk about after that. Um, let me put this to you and then you run with it, okay? So I think um, one way to to think about, summarize what you were talking about with regards to how we feed one another is that Christians are called to act, not react, right? We act. We don't just react to things. So when someone does something that I don't like, uh, sins against me in some way, instead of thinking I need to react with the fruit of the Spirit, I I need to react by being patient, Instead, taking sort of the initiative and saying, I need to feed that person with my patience. Yeah, yeah. Run with that. Right. So, um, yeah, the, that uh, it, it's, it's really a, there's a couple of things, a couple of ways you can go with it. One is, um, you know, the golden rule is treat others the way you would want to be treated. And um, you, know, you think about the times that you're just riled up, right? Uh, you rarely want somebody to just yell back at you. Right? <laughs> you, want, you want somebody that says, okay, what, what's going on? Right? You want somebody that helps you ramp down. Um, uh, but then also, uh, somebody that, that says, okay, there's more to this. Because it's... Um, it's rare that there's not that there's not something underlying something more to it, um, and so you want somebody that says, "Okay, I care about you, and you're ramped up, and let's let's get out of this situation and get back to you know a, a better spot." Um, and that just but what we tend to do is respond in kind, right? You get kind of a blood feud mentality. Somebody says something mean to you, and so you think, now I'm justified in saying something mean back. Right? Blood feud mentality um, is, you, know, you killed my brother, and so I, as I get to kill you, um, but now... And your brother. <laughs> yeah, and your brother. But now that I've killed you and your brother, your cousin comes and kills all of my family, and then I nuke your whole village, right? The, um, it, it always starts with a mean word and ends with a brick in the face. And that's, um, that's a, that blood feud mentality where you're justifying your actions based on what they did. Right. Uh, but what we're told to do um, explicitly is we don't look at the way people treat us and respond in kind. We look at the way Jesus treats us and respond to the people made in his image in kind. Where Jesus says, if you want to return to me love then love my image when it's in front of you, yeah. right? So, um, you know, if, if you've, when you read ancient works, you know, the way that you worship um, Mars or Athena is you go to their statue and their image and you leave a sacrifice there. And in the, the way that they believed, you put a sacrifice on the table of, of in front of the image of Mars and whatever you put there shows up on Mars's table up there, and then he eats and forgets about you, and that's what you want, right? You want him to leave you alone, right? That's the whole yep. point of bringing sacrifices to gods in the ancient world, so they'll forget, they'll get drunk and forget about you, so you bring them wine. Uh, uh, but 
that when we're told to not um, serve God through graven images, it's not because we're not supposed to serve him through images. It's because he's already provided the image. Right? So we return love to God through his image, by loving his image, which is your neighbor, right? which is the people in front of you. So, um, so there's, there's two ways you look at it, right? One is, in a golden rule sense, you say, okay, okay, I love this person. I'm trying. Help me, Lord. Um, how do I, what would I want to do in that situation? And then also you say, and what did Jesus do for me? Right? And so instead of returning in kind, you return, um, it, it justifying your actions through what they do to you, you justify your actions by what Jesus has done and return to Jesus through his image, um, what it is that he's done. It's like you're remembering that both that person is an image bearer, but I'm also an image bearer. Right. So remember, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm also an image bearer, yeah. and therefore I represent Christ. What did he do for me? Right, yeah. right. Good. Um, but that's why, that's why self-control has to be part of the fruit of the Spirit. Right, right, right. Because it's okay, easier so fill, to yeah, fill, fill that out a little shins. bit more. Well, just because we get, I mean, when somebody comes at us and gets riled up, it's hard to not get just riled back up, yeah. right? Um, but the, the only way to self-control in any meaningful sense um, is, you know, James says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. You can't actually just, like, work your way to it. So you have to just, when you lose self-control, then that you confess it. Yeah. You go back and say, oh, Lord, help me out. Yeah. Uh, that was a sin. I shouldn't have done that. Please forgive me. And Jesus says, I forgive you. Right? That's why he died on the cross. And then he forgets it. He doesn't treat you according to the sin anymore. And then confess it to one another. And that confession and forgiveness um, is the way to self-control because it has a way of over time, God has built us in such a way that, that, that doing that, his grace then starts to put a, a, some space between our reaction and our thoughts and our reaction, right? That, that space gets bigger and bigger and we get more and more self-control. But the only way to do it is to have it given to you by the Lord. So you humble yourself and he lifts you up to that yeah. self-control. It's another way of him expanding you. Yep. So if if he's expanding your capacity for joy through these experiences, he's also expanding your capacity to embrace the fruits of the spirit. Yeah. As you practice yeah. them. Right. So you can do it more. <laughs> you can actually handle more. Um, so conversely, then, if 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 one of the ways to view our um, our Christian calling is to feed one another with you know, how would how did Jesus feed others? Um, contrast that then with sin. So one way of contrasting it is sin is you know devouring one another. Yeah. But I think there's also a, a way of saying that I'm going, I'm feeding others my sin. If I, if I'm not feeding them the fruits of the spirit, then right. I'm also feeding them my sin. Yeah, because you're a priest either way. So you're right. you're standing in a gap, right? It's it's either a gap between God and and someone, right? And so you're delivering grace. You're you're lifting them up towards God or you're lifting them up in some other direction. You don't have the option of not oblating, of not being a priest. So everybody that you deal with um, is your, your, in your priestly office. And so then if that's true, when I, when I sin, if I sin privately, um, that means I'm not practicing the fruit of the Spirit privately. 
And so I'm, instead of feeding the people in my community the fruits of the Spirit by putting those things on privately, I'm feeding them my sin. Right. But it's just my private sin. I think it helps to make yeah. sense of the community or the covenantal effects of sin. Right. Like we, we tend to think of the church more like a block of cheese. Obviously, right? Stinky. And, oh. <laughs> right. Wait, it, if you go into the fridge and you've got your big block of Tillamook Sharp cheddar in the black package because you got it at Costco and you open it up and, and uh, there's some mold on one edge, you cut the mold off. You don't eat that part. But then the rest of the cheese you still keep using, right? But if you open up a loaf of bread and you got mold on one end, you don't just tear end off and then eat the rest because the mold gets all throughout. I had a roommate in college that used to just tear the end off and eat the rest and we were like, that's just disgusting, man. <laughs> you know, there's mold in all of it. And he's like, I can't taste it. It's like, it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, <laughs> whole nother picture, whole nother metaphor. But, the, but, but God, but uh, Jesus calls the church bread, right? He says, we are a loaf. We are one loaf. Um, and so what we do, what you do on one end has an effect that, that spreads throughout, both for good or for ill. We tend to hear things like that and immediately go, oh, uh-oh, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Jesus took your sins away, right? So your sins are forgiven. Now, when you sin and don't confess, it still does have that effect on people. But then when you confess, your confession has an effect as well, right? But so does... So, so does um, all, all of the things you do. So, um, because we're, we're covenantally bound to one another. Right? It, uh, the scriptures say we are knit together in love by the Holy Spirit. Right? Um, so that, uh, that communal uh, effect is for good and for ill. So, um, which is why we take time to confess on Sunday mornings and God brings things to us. Right? We are a covenantal body that is confessing our sins together, and God is objectively forgiving right, and resetting our, our church um, in its relationship with Christ in that confession and in the supper. Um, you were talking about how, again, that idea of um, our capacity for joy expanding. Um, contrast that with, um, I don't remember where exactly, but Chesterton talks about how children are uh, they love repetition, and yeah. they love repetition of the small, insignificant things that seem insignificant to us, and that that's something, and the way that he's talking about it is um, that it's something that adults um, grow out of that they shouldn't. Yeah. It's something that, they've, that they're missing. Yeah. Um, compare those two ideas. So he talks about it in orthodoxy, and he, so he's talking about the sunrise. Right. right? Why does the sun come each, up each day? Adults get bored with it, but it's because every day we die a little bit more. Right? <laughs> so, there was, the, uh, there was a great, oh, not a great movie. There was a movie in the 90s <laughs> called Falling Down with uh, Michael Keaton, and it made R.E.M. song Everybody Hurts famous. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, it was this guy that every day he went to work, and he sat in his cubicle, and he died a little bit more. And on the way home one day, he got a flat tire in a bad neighborhood, and um, and it, and it broke him. And so then he wandered through this bad neighborhood beating up drug dealers with a baseball bat. The end. <laughs> and then it ended with the song Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. Right? 
<laughs> and and uh, Chesterton's talking about that kind of life, where every day you die a little bit more on, um, on the inside. You, and so the sun comes up, and you start to get bored with the sunrise. You get bored with the sunset. It's just the sun. He says, but little kids who haven't spent their life dying a little bit each day, they say, another sunrise? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. Right? And he says it's like, it's like when you've got little kids that want to uh, play peekaboo over and over and over. Uh, my oldest daughter, Abigail, when she was nine months old, um, you know, she'd, she'd put a blanket on her head. We called it the danger game. She'd put a blanket on her head and just run full speed until she hit something. <laughs> yeah, she'd, sometimes she'd get hurt. And, but every time she'd hit something and she'd laugh so hard, she'd pull it off and she'd want us to look at her and clap. And then she'd laugh so hard she'd fall over. And she'd pull herself back up, put the blanket on her head again, and run. She'd spin around and then just run. And every once in a while, she'd get hurt. I'm like, I don't get it. But the game was so much fun that eventually we'd have to just stop her. Because she would keep doing it over and over and over. Um, And uh, it says God is more like that. Where he says, uh, should we send the sun up again? Yeah, let's do it. Let's send the sun up again. It's going to be amazing. right? And the sun comes up over and over um, where God is, and, and that's, that's why you know, parents get tired trying to entertain their kids. Right? Um, like when, they're, when they're newborns, you're like, it's amazing. I'm going to love them forever and ever, and it's, everything is so good. And then six months in, you're like, just go to sleep. <laughs> and we're exhausted. We're tired all the time. Right? We don't have enough life left in us uh, to entertain them and keep them because they are so... Uh, excited and interested with everything in the world, right? But God doesn't get tired in that way. Right? God uh, is so full of life that the reason the sun comes up every day is because Jesus loves suns- sunrises, and so the Father sends him another. Where the, fa- the Father is excited to see another sunrise that, that is sent up. So um, that there's a, a fundamental uh, life that we lose because of sin and exhaustion um, that we regain in the resurrection. I can't remember what your question was, but... <laughs> that was a great answer, though. I like that, yeah. <laughs> no, but I think, actually, there, I think there is something there. Um, so, so I think that's true, and there's, there's, that's real. Um, how does that compare with what you were saying, or contrast with, or f- fit with? Because I think it does fit. How does it fit with the idea, then, that... Um, we ought not to be satisfied with the same thing over and over again. We should, ex- in the sense that we should expect God to be expanding us. So like the symphony, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. You, you can't listen to the recording of it over and over again and be satisfied with that. Right. But, but there is a, way, there is a, growth, a, a growth of soul, so to speak, that, um, that makes things more and more enjoyable mm-hmm. when they are seen in relation to God, right? When they're right. seen as a gift um, from the Lord. So I think, um, I think that's the key. It's yeah. seeing it all as a gift. And that means that the, the thing that makes you expand a little more, grow a little more, instead of dying a little more, is gratitude. Yeah, it's gratitude, absolutely. So there's a, um, the, this way of... This is the kind of world... So John Calvin called creation the theater of God's glory... And each of us steps onto stage and plays our part. Um, but, but all of it um, is the kind of place that God's glory is put on display. 
right? So um, Mar- Martin Luther called it uh, he, God, the creation is the kind of place that God can hide himself to surprise us, right? So um, that this, this, or, this created order, this kind of place, the kind of place that this is, is a place full of, of, of the, the props necessary for moments of communion with the Lord, right? That's, that's what this place is, right? So he created food because he likes to sit and eat with us, right? He created us hungry so that we could have uh, communion with him, the Lord's Supper with him regularly, right? He, he created this kind, this, um, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, forest area so that we could wander around in it, be surprised. Um, um, we lived in Santa Cruz, and in our yard, we had both a palm tree and a redwood, Two very different kinds of trees that bring up two diff- very different kinds of, of ideas. And uh, every day in that house, um, I, I would go out you know, to, to the car and I would think, palm tree, redwood. What a, this is the perfect kind of place for people like us, right? Um, my family, is, we, we tell a lot of jokes. There's a lot of humor. My um, we, we used to make our kids retell jokes when they were little if their timing was bad. Because <laughs> my wife didn't want any child of hers to have bad comedic timing. Right? <laughs> we're not going to have that. You, try that joke again. You need a little bit more pause before you hit us with the punchline. Come on. Do, yeah. um, and so it was the perfect sort of house for us because you're like, get it a palm tree and a redwood in the same yard. <laughs> That's... <laughs> So if you don't get it, just think about it. You'll, you'll get it later. <laughs> It'll hit you on your way down to the campfire. <laughs> All right, any questions from you guys? This is more in reference to what you spoke about this morning. Um, you, you set the situation of oftentimes, uh, especially in today's day and age, you have a lot of folks who are wandering. They don't think they fit. Um, and, you, and you share the story regarding just how you uh, approach that from an evangelistic perspective. And uh, I think obviously there, there's a lot of that going on. These people feel like they've wandered and they've, they've kind of run the course, they hit rock bottom, and it increases loss of opportunity to harvest. Other side of the coin, you have these people who think they've found that they're fit. And especially in today's day and age of identity politics, they think they've found where they belong. But they're wrong. Uh, and obviously, it comes with a lot more of a uh, stubborn conversation in your evangelism and in that, in that uh, conversation you have. So, uh, just kind of from your storytelling perspective, how do you see maybe similarities or differences in that approach to someone who's already found their identity but it's completely wrong versus someone who's completely hopeless and realized? Yeah. Do you want to repeat that? question or summarize the question yeah i will try for people that didn't hear um so he said when you're doing evangelism there are people that that have that kind of ennui they feel like they don't fit um but there's other people that have uh have through the the same kind of thing that identity politics use they've come up with an identity they find an identity within some sort of group culture or some some you know i am an emo kid I am 
I don't know why that was the first one I thought of, right? Because you're still in the 90s. Yeah, because I'm still in the 90s, right? Um, you know, the, the, that we're always looking for some group to give us our identity. Um, there's a, there was a uh, so, social philosopher in the uh, 30s and the 40s that, that, I, that he was um, in Germany, and he, it was during the rise of the Third Reich. He spoke out... Um, significantly against Hitler, and when Hitler came to power, he said, oh, this isn't going to be good, so he and his wife actually, they snuck out and they ran for it and barely made it before the SS showed up, and he ended up coming to America, and he, he, uh, he said he could see some of the same things beginning to happen in America, and what he identified was, um, was people taking their taking their most fundamental identity no longer from the nation because they felt like the nation, nationalism, had failed them. And so they began uh, gathering into smaller groups of tr- uh, that, were, that were more of a tribe, was more like a tribal culture in terms of how we identified, um, you know, how, how our identity uh, was formed. And so there were subgroups within. And, uh, and he said... It, this is how you will identify it if you see it coming. Right? There will, um, you'll start to get people dressing in smaller subgroup ways. The tattoos will come back because tattoos were really not particularly popular. You'll see the rise of tattoos, you'll see you know, a body modification. Um, and so he's, he's in the 40s and he's saying, this is how to identify when your culture is tribalizing. Right? And now... I walk down the streets of Spokane, and I'm like, tribe, 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 right? We, we, have, we have tribalized all over the place. When, um, when the evangelists in the early church in, in uh, Greece and Italy and in the Mediterranean uh, areas, when they were evangelizing around the Mediterranean, they used a lot of philosophy, they used a lot of arguments, um, they used philosophical arguments. Uh, Justin Martyr was w- one of the great philosophers of the day. He gets converted, and he starts uh, you know, this philosophical apologetic, and it was really effective within the empire, wh- where the empire hadn't yet fallen apart. But they sent those same people off to, to evangelize uh, up into Europe, and they found tribes that... Uh, had no interest at all in the philosophical arguments, and it didn't work at all, because if you convert, it's not like I'm shifting something in my mind from one belief to another. I'm losing everything. I'm losing my identity. I'm losing my family. And they come back, and and, uh, one of them reports to uh, Pope Gregory. He said, it's like plowing fields of iron up there. It's not working. I don't know what's ever going to happen. We keep and uh, and um, there was a missionary uh, Boniface who he got up from his seat. He walked down to his bishop that day and said, "Send me to the Germans. I want to prove that God can plow fields of iron." Right? Now he went up there and he began evangelizing, and it, the same, and and there were other people sent to the other tribes. So, so Pope Gregory sent evangelists to the uh, Germans, to the, up to, to the Icelandic people, 
um, and he sent them to the Anglo-Saxons, uh, which were also a, a Germanic tribe as well. And every place where the, the missionaries were successful, it was where um, they converted the poets. And the poets were the ones that were able to convert the tribes. Right? Um, and it, it was a, such a different approach, but it was a way of, of approaching their humanity, not mind first, but story first, and um, sort of gut first. Uh, and and uh, uh, I suspect that in our day and age, as we tribalize, that our attempts to evangelize, often they kind of ring hollow and they bounce off people's foreheads. Um, and you just get, pong. Because there's not much going on up there. <laughs> right? Because the seat of our identity has shifted uh, from our head down more into our gut, into kind of a, a, a tribal setting. Now, God created both of those, right? And so um, the, uh, the way that we evangelize, historically speaking, the way that we, the church, have evangelized tribal people is more through the arts, um, through storytelling, through poetry. Uh, and, um, you know, the, there was about a decade where uh, St. Augustine of Canterbury was, was preaching to the Anglo-Saxons, uh, where he had one convert, right? um, and then in two years they had 100,000 baptisms. Right? The reason that they had to create the Book of Common Prayer was they couldn't get people ordained fast enough, and so they had to put together, this is how you do a worship service, because they had to have more worship services than there were pastors available. And so then they would have a deacon that just led them through the worship service. Um, and, and it was, uh, it, it was the poet's, that made that possible. I mean, the king was the the king in London was baptized, and there wasn't even a record of it because so many came through so fast that they forgot to write down which of, when when the king was baptized. That seems like it would have been a big deal, um, but they didn't even record it. They just said he was one of the baptisms in this month. <laughs> so, hundred thousand baptisms in two years um, through. The, the poetic evangelism. So my, and, and that's a, a different way of thinking about the humanity of a person. Um, and we tend to be stuck more in that nationalistic understanding that you go in through the mind to a person. Um, but that's, a, and that's, I think it's because as Christians, we still hold on to traditions and nation and our nation has a, a lot of them. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, but, many people have been failed significantly identity-wise by the nation, and so um, their, their identity is drawn from some other place. So, did that answer your question? Yeah, so it sounds like it's, it's more this approach of, like you're saying, to the arts through poets. It's what that false identity is, is really a deconstruction of culture, and it's not going to come back in and rebuilding that culture in the light of it. In, in some ways, it's a, it's a false identification, but there is a place for tribes. I mean, there are, there are tribes do come in. Um, so it is a, it is a legitimate uh, identity. Um, it's, like a lot of things, it's over against, it's a nihilistic identity, meaning it's a, my identity is defined by what I'm not, um, which is what you, our political parties are function more like tribes than political parties right now, right? Um, 
the, they define themselves by what they're not. They define themselves by the edges. You people are over there. You're not us. That means that that's how we know who we are. Um, and then they also use magic. I mean, poles. <laughs> and, and I think that ties into your first talk also, or I'm sorry, the talk, the other part of your talk from this morning about evangelism. Yeah. Because where what, uh, and this is not unique to our time, but, but in, in all eras, what really is effective as evangelism is, is not the arguments. There's a place for that. Yeah. And, and sometimes that's what God uses. But I think predominantly it's the bread and the wine. It's the whiskey and the chocolate. Yeah, right, it's, yeah. it's that friendship. It's, the, it's, it's that existential apologetics. It's the life. I mean, because if, if you're living in, if you've got a, if, if your identity is wrapped up in who your people are, and you know becoming a Christian means losing that, right. then, they, then if your offer of the gospel doesn't come with an invitation to become a part of a people, then, you know, good luck with that, right? Because you, they're... Um, they know that they're being offered an identitylessness, right? They get, I mean, Jesus plus no identity is still greater. And that's, right? and that's not a thing, yeah, right? right? Jesus yeah, with no identity yeah. is not a thing, but the offer of community, that right. offer of friendship is right. part of what God uses yeah. to demonstrate Christ. Right, the, the part of his good news is the church, right. which sounds funny because we've known churches. <laughs> Churches, we are churches. We are churches. <laughs> and, I mean, churches, man. But, that, Chester, but one of the things Chesterton says is the best argument for the church is the fact that it's terrible, and yet it continues to outlast everything else, right? <laughs> that, that there is no way to look at the church and say, well, it's super well organized, and everybody <laughs> serves one another really well, and, right? Instead, right, what, what's the evidence that the, that the church exists? Well, Jesus must love this place because it's outlasted the Roman Empire. It's outlasted, you know, it, it, the, the entire force of the Roman Empire. The, the, uh, it threw itself completely at a little tiny band uh, of Christians, and it had perfected, it had inherited the art of death from all of the empires of the world and then perfected them itself through all of it at this little tiny band of Christians and the Roman Empire was overcome by them, right? The, 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 and, it, and it wasn't because of their great organizational skills. It wasn't because of, I mean, Paul was like, look, I stutter. <laughs> and, uh, right. and he says, but, but what continues to happen? The spirit of God, it loves this people. And the Spirit of God protects and grows and, and, and this people, and people continue to be converted um, down to this day. And it's a miracle. I mean, we're on the opposite side from, of the world from Jerusalem. Um, and uh, it, it, the, the, the existence of the church is a miraculous event yeah. every Sunday. <laughs> right. right. Good. Let's do one more question. All right, let's do a psalm sing. Thank you, Jason. Yeah.